So if uh, we haven't met yet, my name is Scott. Uh, I'm uh, one of the chaplains in UCD, um, and I am also part of the group that uh, coordinates our young adults ministry on Thursday nights. Um, and we're, uh, today we're finishing up our The Coming Kingdom series. So next week in the liturgical calendar is Christ the King Sunday, and then we move into Advent. And we've worked on this series together throughout the summer of, of, the, of the plan. The lectionary readings for this season have all been through the Gospel of Mark. And so we wanted to figure out, like, what was this kind of driving message? And then also, like, where would it take us? And so this whole thing is building this theme of the coming kingdom until next week is Christ the King Sunday. And then we enter into a new uh, series, which is our Advent series, called The Promised King. And we're going to be looking not just at the gospel readings uh, for Advent, um, uh, but actually the Old Testament promises that talk about how this, this whole story that we celebrate together and that we explore together is one narrative that runs the whole way through Scripture of the God who's working through individuals and groups of people to bring redemption and hope to our world. And so um, we'll be exploring those promises uh, um, from the past. But today we're wrapping up this, the coming kingdom. And uh, I found out I was preaching and then found out the gospel for it and was like, oh no, you've got to be kidding me. So this is, this is the, the heading for this passage in Mark chapter 13 is the destruction of the temple foretold, which is always like, this will be a real cheery one. Um, but so let's see what the text says and then we'll, oh, actually before that, yes, um, if you're around tonight, that was definitely bigger when I uploaded it. Um, that's on me. Um, <laughs> it doesn't. How, how are the rest of the slides? They're good. Okay, it's just this one. Right. Wow. It looks like I tried to blow up a postage stamp. Um, so uh, tonight we have a One Dublin gathering. Phil McKinley is coordinating um, a series of monthly services um, for, uh, it's pr particularly aimed at young adults and students, but all are welcome. Um, and it's in St. Thomas's Church on Cahill Brewer Street, and it's a combination of gospel music, uh, and I'll be speaking at it tonight, and then we have a community meal afterwards. And the idea is about, it's called One Dublin, and it's about um, bringing together a young adult movement of people finding God in Dublin One. Uh, so if you're around tonight, half seven, uh, St. Thomas's on Cahill Brewer Street, please do come and join us. And I promise you it'll be a different sermon uh, than this one, because I don't think I could bring myself to preach this one twice. Okay, um, so this is what the verses for this morning say. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. So I think there's two things that we need to explore if we're going to figure out what this has to say to us 2,000 years later. The first thing we need to figure out is what did the temple mean to the disciples at this time? Like when, 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 when this disciple, he looks up and he says, what great stones and what great buildings? Is it because he's an architecture enthusiast or is there something else going on? Is this just, wow, what a feat of engineering or is there something else in his mind? We can so often forget it, but he was a person with a story, with a sense of history, meaning, and purpose. 
And to a Jew in the first century, the temple was so much more than stones and buildings. A first century Jew would have seen the temple the same way that a New Yorker today might see the Statue of Liberty. Its presence speaks to their past and to who they have been and to who they are in the present. Its heritage, identity, purpose, potential, and destiny all rolled into one. So let's look at the temple for a second. Um, Some of you were probably here for a few months ago when I had a bunch of slides with pictures of the temple and I went full nerd on it. Um, We're not going to do that today. I'm I'm, I'm pushing back against those impulses within myself. But this is a picture of what the temple would have looked like. And this is the grandeur and the splendor that um, the, the disciple would have been ca- um, captivated by. But let me give you a potted history. The first temple in, um, for the nation of Israel was built by Solomon. And it was a reminder of God's faithfulness to keep his promise to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt and to give them a land of their own. And the first temple was destroyed because Israel forgot who they were called to be. And other empires swooped in and and, uh, devastated their cities and the temple. This is the second temple. And it was built by Herod after Israel had returned from exile under Nehemiah and Ezra. And it was massive and stunning, bigger than any of the ones that had gone before it. And its beauty spoke of the faithfulness of God to redeem his people, even after their unfaithfulness and failure. So in the mind of the disciple who looks up and is captivated, this wasn't just about stones and buildings. This was the religious, political, and cultural center of a geographic space, of the city of Jerusalem that occupied real estate, not just in the, uh, in the, in the physical land, but in the emotional reality and spiritual reality of the people of Israel. And it had been under construction for 70 years. For many of these disciples, many of the people of Israel, they would have lived around Israel, but once a year would have journeyed together towards Jerusalem. And so over the 70 years it took for this to build, they would have come to Jerusalem and and seen it growing year upon year. And as it grew, so did their sense of um, their own restoration, their sense of what God was doing. And on top of all of that, In the disciples' mind, this place was also the space where God lived. Just as God journeyed with the nation of Israel in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, in their mind, he now lived with them in the temple, in the space in the center called the holiest of holies. So that's what he means by stones and buildings. But we also need to get a sense for what's going on within the disciples when they arrive in Jerusalem. They don't just arrive um, uh, on another humdrum, uh, humdrum day. This is the climax of a journey for them. We read about the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11. Jesus and his disciples had just arrived back in Jerusalem after this like tour around the country. It's like a Bernie Sanders caravan style tour of like bringing hope to people all over the place who feel disenfranchised and disconnected. That tell you a little bit about my political leaning, so you can um, uh, make up your mind on that. But we can imagine this like a, a political campaign where there's this swell of love, adoration, and belief and support from people all across the country. And now they come to the capital. And when they do, and Jesus rides in on a donkey, people are crying out and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these are phrases with cultural baggage. They're they're not things that they invented on the spot. They're, They're declaring the promises of old that here amongst us now comes the fulfillment of God's promises, his redemption made flesh. 
He comes now into our midst. Everything is about to change. Revolution is beginning. Here in God's city, the revolution will begin. This was the central site of the city from which they thought Jesus would reign and they with him. They thought they would overthrow the corrupt and failing religion of the past so that God's kingdom could be ushered in. Can you imagine then how jarring this conversation must be for them? What happens when your leader, your mentor, and your Messiah tells you that the most important place in the world, which you think is your destination and purpose, will be destroyed? And not only that, the world will tumble into violence and chaos, and he won't be there when it happens. Jesus continues in um, 13 verse 9. He says, As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I had this picture as we were as we were working on this of uh, as I was working on this of um, uh, the the, how the disciples imagine their future going. And I like to imagine they imagine themselves. You know that this was like them being fitted for their new kingly garments for the world that Jesus was bringing into play, and that they would like have portraits painted of themselves. You know, they're like I'm ready to pose for my portrait. And this is the sense of the trajectory that they had that they would be. captured in art and placed on the side of somewhere like the temple. But in reality, it was much more like this. They're more likely to end up in mugshots than they were in portraits. And that that was part of the promise. So what does this mean for our understanding of the coming kingdom as we wrap up this series? There's a few things that I was really, really challenged by with this. First of all, The kingdom of God that the disciples imagine in their head is much more like the empires of this world than the kingdom that Jesus came to start. And I find there's a lot of modern writers who have really helpful language about this that that makes this distinction between empire and kingdom. The kingdom of God is this, this movement of compassion, grace, and sacrificial love that has the potential to transform all things. An empire is kind of like the way in which the world works already. Our tendency towards violence, our tendency towards hierarchy, our love of injustice, our ignoring of those who have been silenced or those who have been marginalized. In the world in which they lived, the disciples were hoping for the coming kingdom that would take them out from under the oppression and the violence of the Roman Empire. And the the empire doesn't always have to be Roman. It can be whatever world in which we're living that has a destructive impulse, that that comes out of our most broken tendencies. And the disciples, when they imagine the kingdom, they imagine like military dominance. They imagine being conquerors, but with God on their side. Their vision is not for a different world. It's for the same world, but them in a different place in it. And this is a problem 
in Christianity, if we have a failure of imagination that can only imagine us being in a different place rather than God bringing to pass a different world. The coming kingdom invites us to imagine this, a world that values redemption over revenge, community over competition, relationship over reputation, and sacrifice over superiority. I also think the pictures that the disciples had in their head was almost like the temple was this tree, this giant oak tree that was like coming out of the ground. And people would come from all over Jerusalem, all over Israel, all over the world to find fruit from this one source of life. And so within their minds, it was this geographically based kingdom with this tree at the center where here you can come and find life. But I think that's why Jesus used to talk uh, about, um, tell parables like the parable of the mustard seed. He's talking about the kingdom of God being like a weed. And he would talk about, it's, it's this tiny seed, but if it gets into the ground, what'll happen is it'll, it'll come down and it'll grow up real fast. But it won't just grow up, it'll grow out. And, it'll, and even if it gets like on a footpath, if it gets under the paving stones, it'll spread under the paving stones and it'll break up through concrete and it'll, it'll, it'll disrupt the systems that we try to build. And it'll always be breaking through and it'll always be moving out. The kingdom of God is like a subversive organic power that can take a city over and reclaim it and make it a garden again where God is with all and God is in all. And that's what we're invited to. Not to seek out the tree, but to be this, this, this organic life that is bulging out of the cracks in this world, bringing green to gray spaces. The other question that I had for us was um, the question of who, uh, the disciples I think would wonder, who would we be without the temple? The temple ended up being destroyed in 70 AD and the Roman siege and victory was devastating in its destruction. For the Jewish people, this was incredibly traumatic. And for Christians, it was heartbreaking, but it wasn't paralyzing. And I began to reflect on, on, on why was that? And I think it's because at the moment of Jesus' death, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, and the presence of God was no longer understood to be contained in a building made by the hands of man. The early Christians carried the presence of God from region to region, from city to city, and from person to person. The coming kingdom burst forth, not in central, gigantic, religious, institutional spaces, but through tiny communities of redemption and self-emptying love, pockets of which began to spring up all over the, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was playing the worst game of whack-a-mole ever. Have you ever played that whack-a-mole game where you've got that big hammer and the moles pop up and you have to try and hit them? That was what was happening in the Roman Empire. Nero was trying to extinguish it. And it's like anywhere he dropped down his hammer, he might knock one mole back up, but three would pop up somewhere else. There was this subversive movement that we... we would, um, would meet in rich people's houses, poor people's houses, would get into the uh, tunnels underneath a city and worship in the sewers, and they would worship in graveyards and in tombs, and wherever they could gather, they had these secret symbols that invited people to say, empire doesn't have the last word. The kingdom of God will make all things new. 
Which raises this question, I think, for us, and this has really been on my heart throughout this week as I've been preparing this. Who are we without this building? How would our community know that we as a community existed if it wasn't what the locals lovingly, I assume, refer to as the black church? Which tells you something about Ireland's division in the past between Catholic and Protestant. I was talking to somebody during the week, um, and she's from Roscommon, she's a colleague of mine, we were away in Rhode Island at this, um, uh, at this conference, and uh, I, was chatting, I was trying to describe where we were, and she said, oh, you, oh, the black church, we were told that if you ran around it backwards three times, the devil would appear to you. <laughs> but if this building disappeared, how would people in our area, or how would people in the places that we've traveled from, know that there is a people of a different kind of kingdom, with a different kind of message, a different kind of rhythm and way of life. And that's why these conversations that we've been having over the last few weeks about the way in which we want to serve our community and reach out to our community, about the small groups, the ways in which we're gathering in each other's homes and meeting over a table, not, over the, not just over the back of pews, are so crucial because that's where community is found and where community is bound. We talk about being family, but if we lost this home, would we find each other and serve each other and alongside each other in the world outside of here? For the disciples, this was, this sounded like the beginning of the end. All will be thrown down. What not one stone will, will be kept upon another. The, to them, this sounded like death, like the death of their people, like the death of their mission, like the death of, uh, of their dreams. And yet to Jesus, the way in which he talks about it, it's the beginning of a whole new thing. A resurrection, not just of him, but of the nation of Israel and of its original purpose that goes beyond racial boundaries and invites all people to be part of it. The church is not a building where ritual happens. The church is a, is a people in whom resurrection is happening. The church is not a building where ritual happens. The church is a people in whom resurrection is happening within each one of us, within our lives, within our relationships. Eugene Peterson has this wonderful description he says, church is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. Death of nations, death of civilization, death of marriage, death of careers, obituaries without end. Death by war, death by murder, death by accident, death by starvation, death by electric chair, lethal injection, and hanging. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus' life. That is what this coming kingdom is. That's the blood that runs through its vein. It's the heartbeat that it's at its center. And it's this pumping heart that is at its center. Not a building, not bricks and mortar, not the place where we believe God is contained, but rather believing that God is contained in us and where we go, he goes too. In fact, he's probably already there. It is a kingdom without walls, a kingdom without a castle. Weeds, that are taking over a city 
and turning it back to a garden. This is why when Paul um, is rounding off one of his prayers in Ephesians, he says, and now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is already at work within us, to him be glory in Christ Jesus and through all generations, forever and ever. This is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray.